What I learned was, you know, the whole idea of running a business or in any organization along a 12-month plan can be extremely limiting because the world that we live in today is just simply too fast moving. So instead of that one-year plan or sometimes people have three to five-year strategic plans, nuclear bomb all of that, right? Instead, move to the two extremes, running organizations in a faster 30-day sprint cycle, but at the same time, thinking about 30 years because the cool thing about a far enough time horizon is that you're no longer constrained by existing resources and budgets and existing technologies. You can unleash your imagination. And I think it's super crucial to do that because that's when you start thinking about your purpose. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders, game-changing influencers, and next-level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your host, CEO and founder of Energy to Perform, international speaker and leadership performance coach, Craig Johns. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we speak with a phenomenal leader who disrupted the airline industry, is making a difference to the health and lives of people around the world, and loves taking on a challenge of racing some of the world's toughest Ironman triathlon events. He has a BSc in Electrical Engineering and an MSc in Management Science and Engineering from Stanford University, and has completed a specialization in Executive Data Science course at the St. John Hopkins University. His career has included partner and senior management roles at Booz Allen Hamilton, McKinsey and Company, Bursa Malaysia and Astro All Asian Network. In 2007, he became a pioneer in the low-cost, long-haul commercial aviation as he became the CEO of AirAsia X, growing the business from startup to grossing more than US $1 billion a year. He is now involved as an investor and advisory roles at iFlix Malaysia and Money Match, and has developed a groundbreaking health tech startup called Naluri. I'm honored and privileged to introduce to you a young, uh, to a family man who is a former ultimate Frisbee champion, courageous triathlete, self-confessed crazy guy, passionate about taking things apart, and author of the recently published book, 30 Days and 30 Years, Azrin Osman Rani. Azrin, welcome to the show. Hey, Craig, good to be here. So, you know, we've just come off the Mass Participation World Conference and, you know, you're talking about health and wellness, but we're first gonna kind of kick off with, when we talk about high achievers, your name comes to mind. You know, before we delve into that incredible leadership qualities, life lessons, and courageous approach, let's take a step back in time to when you were a child. Wow. Where did you grow up and what fueled your fire as a child? Well, uh, I was born and bred in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Now, interestingly, if you've read Malcolm Gladwell's um, Outliers, right, about the whole 10,000 hours phenomenon and how he had the story of how um, professional ice hockey players from Canada 
disproportionately were born January to March, yes. right? Because the story is they start so young at the you know three years old, four years old peewee leagues. At that age, if you're January to March, you tend to be bigger in size physically than the kids who were born in October to December. And because you were stronger, you were given more opportunity, and so your your career in sports accelerated, right? Now, I was born in December. <laughs> I was born and I was one of the small kids in my year and would often get left out of uh, soccer games. So that was the big thing in Malaysia. And because you were left out of the mainstream sports, I ended up learning how to make my own sports, yeah. my own games uh, to entertain myself, plus rally around younger kids around me. And so I think early on, I've, you know, for me, it's always about coming up with new things on my own and, and learning how to rally younger people around me to join my crazy pursuits because I did not fit in the conventional mold. So is that when you kind of first found your, your leadership um, in that age where you're disrupting the space, you were trying new things? Well, it was less about the leadership of people. It was more of I led with curiosity, right? I was willing to experiment. I was willing to try new things and suggest uh, crazy ideas to the others and somehow get people excited about doing new things. Oh, brilliant. So uh, during those childhood years, who provided the greatest impact on you as a person during those formative years and why? Well, I think uh, cliched, but my parents, because both were university professors, and this is the one unique thing, was that they would have their colleagues come home for dinners oftentimes, and they would encourage me at four, five, six years old to have conversations with the adults. So I was lucky to not be brought up in a household where kids were told to just keep quiet, but to participate in dinner tables and to present your ideas to other university professors, right? And so you learn at an early age to articulate and express ideas. And I think that probably was instrumental in, in shaping that, not only the curiosity part, but the willingness to communicate uh, your ideas. So talking about communicating ideas, what, what inspired you to study science and engineering at Stanford University? Ah, well. My main focus uh, finishing high school was to just go as far away from Malaysia as I can. And most Malaysians in the late 80s went to either the UK or Australia for education. Less went to the US. And even those who went to the US, they were more skewed to uh, the East Coast. So I wanted to go as far as possible, all the way down to California. And I didn't care what I was going to study. Um, at that point in the 1980s, you were told there are only four career options, medicine, law, accounting, and engineering. And I didn't like any one of them, right? But I just wanted a ticket to get out of the country. And so for me, it was process of elimination. Medicine, oh, these guys study for years and years, and frankly, I'm not thrilled about the side of blood. Law and accounting, the textbooks don't have colored pictures. <laughs> and so the only default was engineering, not because I was excited about it, but it was the least of the four evils. It was a ticket to escape Malaysia. And after that degree, I never practiced a single day as a professional engineer, but it was the ticket to explore the world. Yeah, I can see you've got a, this real natural entrepreneurial instinct. <laughs> you know, how did you earn your first dollar? Wow. Um, it would be I, I probably at, at eight or nine uh, creating a delivery service in the neighborhood where you know I would 
I remember designing hand-drawn flyers and distributing flyers to all the neighbors and saying, if you need stuff from the store, I will go and buy it for you. <laughs> so. Impressive, I love yes. it. You joined Booz Allen Hamilton, who are a consulting firm who have been at the forefront of strategy, technology, and engineering for more than a century. You know, what is it about their company culture that allows them to be so successful? Well, you know, first of all, I have to say, you know, um, I was just really focused. The one thing I really wanted to, to get involved with in university was Ultimate Frisbee, right? <laughs> uh, and the only reason why I did my master's program, by the way, was because we lost in the, na in the national championships in my final year of university. I was determined to have one more shot because you get four years of college eligibility. Yeah. And because I started my sophomore year, so I had one more extra year. So I just did my master's so that I could have one more shot at the national championship. By the way, I did not win. We lost in the semifinals oh, that year. <laughs> and uh, when it came to leaving, for me, I had no idea what I wanted to do. But one of my former uh, teammates, uh, one year my senior, he had joined uh, a management consulting firm. And he told me about the exposure to different industries and geographies and different business challenges. And so that appealed to my natural, curious, and attention deficit situation. <laughs> um, and when it came to, at that point in the US, the US was still recovering from a recession in the early 90s, but Southeast Asia was booming. Uh, and so for me, it became clear, I wanted to come back to Southeast Asia and at that point, Booz Allen was the leading consulting uh, firm uh, in Southeast Asia then. Even McKinsey were not quite in Southeast Asia yet. Um, and so I think one of the main principles of why these companies um, succeed in growing talent very rapidly, I feel, is the willingness to throw young analysts in the deep end. Yeah. You know, and, and because you know, even as a 23-year-old, you were put in front of a senior executive at a client and you got to convince him why, you know, what he's been doing for 30 years has to change. And, and that's incredibly intimidating. Yeah. But you learn because you're thrown in and you've got to do. You can't learn theoretically. So I think just creating these opportunities and because you work on a project basis, you have a lot of variety and you quickly start to connect new dots rather than, for example, taking on one job for several years, you might build deeper specialization, but you miss the ability to connect new dots. Yeah, I like it, I like it. So working in an innovation company must have provided lots of opportunities to explore and experiment. You know, and, and as you mentioned there, you, know, you had those opportunities. So what was the biggest lesson for you during your first days working at Booz Allen Hamilton? Well, um, I think the, the first thing uh, was this principle of obligation to dissent. And that meant, you know, if you knew something or you've had an idea, you can't quietly bitch about it on the sidelines. It's your obligation to bring up your point of view. And this goes against a lot of our Asian culture values. And I touched on this earlier, right, because it's naturally not something that we'd like to do to bring up problems or to challenge our superiors. Um, and so it, it had to be shaped in me that you, know, you have to learn how to speak up and challenge senior people. Right? I think that, that was key. 
So fast forward a few years and, and you're working at Bursa Malaysia as a senior vice president and head of business transformation. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a big title. Was this the, f you know, so for you, you know, you kind of go into that leadership role. You know, how did you find the transition from being an employee to now leading teams of people, projects and large P&Ls? So that was an interesting one, mainly because uh, the Kuala Lumpur Stock Exchange were my client at McKinsey. I spent almost a year helping them prepare to become a privatized entity, very much like how the Australian Stock Exchange was privatized uh, before that. Uh, and at the end of the project, the chairman came to me and said, look, great ideas. No one in this organization really understands how a privatized stock exchange should operate. And I can't afford McKinsey fees anymore. Yeah. So he pulled this national service card on me and said, you really should you know, go beyond just preparing PowerPoint presentation decks. You should show whether you can actually get things done. And he threw that challenge at me. And boy, you know, when someone throws a challenge at me, when someone says, this is really hard, you can you know, present ideas, but can you get things done? And so I decided, boom, I'm going to jump in. I took a 50% pay cut because wow. he said, that's all I can afford. You know, we're a, a quasi-government organization. But the opportunity to take your ideas and your plans and actually make it happen. Uh, so that was probably one of the more incredible periods uh, in my professional career. Uh, I, love the, I love the jump there. And, yeah. and you know, look, it's not about money, right? right. It's, it's about finding something that, that's passionate, that fuels the fire in your yeah. belly. And it's like, man, let's just go for it. Yes, yes. So 2007 must mark as one of your real defining, like life defining moments. You know, how did you find yourself in a conversation with Tony Fernandez, right. the legendary Tony Fernandez, about becoming the first CEO of Air Asia X? Well, you know, that just like that stock exchange story and, and Astro All Asia Networks before that, it was always about somehow people call me up. Yeah. I don't go out looking for these opportunities, but I think if you are incredibly passionate about the work that you do, um, you create a reputation and, and you know, it, pe people come looking for you. So before AirAsiax in 2007, um, I was helping Astro All Asia Networks build media businesses from scratch in Indonesia, India, China, right? Where you start with one day, you've just signed a shareholders agreement, how do you go from there to 450 people with a fully functioning satellite broadcast center in Jakarta, five channels and nationwide distribution in 10 months, yeah. right? It's that speed of execution. And so, um, as I shared earlier at this conference, um, the reason why AirAsia X had to be set up as a separate entity was because AirAsia themselves felt that the idea of going long haul was too preposterous, too risky, and they didn't want to have any balance sheet exposure. So it had to be created as a separate company, and because everyone, even in AirAsia, felt it was um, foolhardy, and that's why Tony said, okay, well, you know, I feel instinctively that there's something here, but if everyone in the airline industry believes it cannot be done, I have to go out of the industry and find someone outside who's gullible enough not to know that it's an impossible <laughs> thing to do. So that was my only qualification, no industry experience. <laughs> so taking on those new, innovative and disruptive right. approach to long-haul airline travel, right. you know, obviously very exciting times right. and obviously probably a bit nervous as well going, what am I getting myself yes. into here? You set the original agenda, you know, was there by Tony because 
someone else wasn't prepared to go down that path. In those first kind of three months, what did you know? What were the kind of key things you were doing? Because you, I'm, I'm sure you got to, you had no staff, and you yes. just had to build everything from That's scratch. Right. Actually, one of the powerful lessons that I learned as an outsider coming into the industry is you really need to find a partner with deep industry experience. So a lot of the success for me at X is a gentleman by the name of Moses Devanayagam. Moses became my chief operations officer. He had just retired from Malaysia Airlines after working for 30 years. And he knew everything it wa that, that was about running an airline, right? So from pilots and flight operations, flight attendants, ground operations, engineering, he had deep industry insight. But what made him unique was, unlike a lot of people who've been in an industry for 30 years, he didn't have very dogmatic views about how things were willing to, uh, should be done, right? He was always open, but, you know, and we would carpool to work every day, right? And because he lived near, it was a one hour drive to the airport. And I would be this five-year-old kindergarten kid who asked, why are things being done this way? Why this? Why not that? But Moses gave me unique insight, right? Because he knew how things work. He said, well, that's an interesting idea. If you want to take that approach, you need to solve this, this, and this. And it's those insights that I wouldn't know as an outsider. Right? But he was able to pinpoint, not as you cannot do that, but if you want to do that, you'll have to solve this. And that is why, you know, even with iFlix, when Patrick Grove brought the team together, he said, um, Mark Britt had built uh, internet television in Australia, which, which is what is now Stan, and, but he had no experience in Southeast Asia. And so Patrick brought Mark and me together to combine our different experiences. So. Mm -hmm. I've always valued people with deep industry knowledge, but there's also a role for crazy people like me to challenge why things are being done a certain way yeah. and are there different ways of looking at uh, the current situation. Because change doesn't occur without the disruptors, yes. the innovators, the creative, the crazy yes. people in the world, right? Yes. As, as Steve Jobs famously yeah. said. Yeah. If you were to travel back in time right. and have a pep talk with yourself on that first day as CEO of Air Asia X, what p key piece of advice would you provide? Wow, um, there's, there's, there's so much that we learned um, on the job, right? Um, but I think uh, definitely for me up front is we have to define culture much earlier. Right? When you start and you've got you know, five people and then 10 and 20 and everyone's sitting in the same room, it's easy to assume that somehow we're all on the same page. Right? But before you know it, suddenly you have fiefdoms and camps and broken communications because if that doesn't get ironed out, right, no idea can come to fruition. And so for me, I would have said it's important to define principles and values how we make decisions right up front, yeah. right? And so one of the things I, I decided to do at Naluri, for example, new company again, fresh blank sheet of paper, was I wrote a user guide on how to work with Azran, right? <laughs> because I've learned that I'm not the easiest person to work with. And so if I could shortcut the process of learning how to work with me by specifying this is how I think and this is how I make decisions. So if you can adapt to me, we're gonna have a better relationship. And I think it allows that to scale faster. Mm, great insight. 
you know, you're someone who thrives on being comfortable in the uncomfortable. What scared you the most and had you on edge during your, you know, those startup years of the different companies? Whew. Well, you know, at, at AirAsia, of course, I remember one of the first things I had to do was uh, go meet the Director General of the Civil Aviation Authority, right? And he would sit me down and he would tell me, listen, son, the airline industry is a serious business. Human lives are at stake, right? And the, he wanted to really impress upon me that uh, under no circumstances should you take shortcuts that affect people's lives. And, uh, you know, when you have that, you know, serious moment one-on-one, -on -one, uh, you know, it really sinks home that, you know, it's not just, yes, it's about pushing the envelope and, and, and challenging convention, but you're also dealing with people's lives. Yeah. And, and I think it, that's a very harsh and sober reality to sink in. Putting the customer first is absolutely mm -hmm. crucial in any business. However, without the right people on board at a company, the company is not going to be successful. So how did you balance that innovation versus building those high-performing teams at AirAsiaX? Air Obviously, you talked about the culture mm -hmm. being delayed at the start, but what other things did you do to balance that? Okay, so uh, a couple of things that we learned. Number one, uh, while we want to encourage a lot of new ideas from everyone on the team, very soon the first problem you're going to face is too many ideas, mm -hmm. right? And so which ones do you do? And you know, how do you know when you go down one path and we, whether you're supposed to keep uh, pushing through, be resilient, be persistent to, to make it work through all the bumps, or call it quits and move on to something new, right? Um, so two things. One, uh, we learned that we needed to define how many things are we going to have on our plates at any one time, right? We arbitrarily decide our number is 30, which means we encourage new ideas, but if you want to see your new idea being implemented by the team, you have to dislodge one of the list of 30. It's like yeah. king of the hill concept, right? And so that became a clear way to communicate to everyone in the organization, you know, you have to get on the list. So if your idea doesn't get implemented, it doesn't mean that we are not interested in it, but you got to go back to the drawing board and figure out how do you get on the list of 30. The other important thing to learn is how do you clarify how decisions get made, right? So why would one thing be on the list of 30 versus the other? And this is why for me, I felt it was very important at all times to take a high level vision but turn it into something that be can become a real compass that guides you in how you make your decisions. For example, Tony came up with the slogan of, now everyone can fly. It's a powerful, catchy slogan, easy to understand, but it's also very abstract. And so we needed to find a way to make it real for everyone on the team to make clear decisions. And so we decided to, to say, okay, well, to achieve now everyone can fly, what would have to be in place? Number one, you have to fly everywhere. That means you've got to have planes, which means you've got to raise money and you've got to get rights to fly to different destinations. Otherwise, that's not going to be a reality, right? And so all that work becomes important. Secondly, if you really want to be now everyone can fly, you have to be the world's most affordable airline. You have to have the world's lowest unit cost, and that matters a lot. Third, you can be the cheapest, but if you're not reliable, no one's going to fly with you. So reliability becomes key, right? How do you define being industry leading reliability so that that doesn't become uh, something that people uh, downgrade you for. And fourth, 
convenience, right? So if you're cheap and reliable, but it's hard to use you and hard to, uh, you know, uh, avail yourself uh, to that service, it's hard. So by defining these four pillars, right, and even quantifying it, so we had a model. One, we want it to be a $1 billion company. Two, two US cents per seat kilometer, which is a unit cost measure for the airline industry. Three, three out of every four hours, the plane must be in the air. So when plane down, bad. Plane in the sky, good, good. right? Four out of every five seats must be filled and be, be filled with happy customers. And so once you define that and it becomes easy for everyone to understand one, two, three, four, that way when anyone in the team comes up with an idea, they have to think, well, with this, which of the four or combination of the four will it push the envelope on? And so defining that decision process is for me critical because if we keep that in our head, we become the bottleneck to decisions, right? And that's the worst thing to do as a leader. And so if you want to empower your organization, it's not just about general empowerment, but you've got to give them that framework so that they can make the right decisions uh, by themselves. So did you ever get any time to reflect or was it just always all systems go and we're moving in 100 miles an hour, uh, we're going this way? Now, if you do that, you're going to get burnt out completely, right? And so there are, there are periods where you've got to just detach yourself from the day-to-day -day, uh, realities and, and firefighting and block time to think, right? Block time to recharge. That's so crucial um, because otherwise it's so easy to get lost in uh, the day-to-day -day work, right? So, for example, my rule is if I have to make the same decisions five times in a row, then something is not right, right? So when I start, of course, I need to look at every marketing campaign because I want to make sure the tone, the messaging fits with our brand identity. But if I keep making that same decision, I'm the bottleneck. So I've got to now write down, how do I make a decision on whether a campaign is uh, worthy or not? And then I give that list to the team and says, if you follow this list, you are now empowered to make that decision by yourself. I'll review that once a month to kind of see whether we need to tweak it or not, all right? But always figuring out how do I push that decision, yeah. right? I even came up with our interview guide because hiring is important. It's so crucial, not, not the assessment for technical competency, but the culture fit. But if I become the only one who has to make that last interview, I'm the bottleneck. And so I had to write, like, this is how I decide whether someone has the right cultural values to fit in our team. And once we had the two-page guide, other people can do that, mm -hmm. right? And that allows me to step back, you know, look at things uh, differently. Because the moment we get lost in day-to-day -day decisions is when, you know, we just, we, yeah, it's difficult, right? So after positioning AirAsiaX to be the first publicly listed, long-haul, low-cost carrier airline, you decided to find a new challenge. <laughs> was the transition an easy one where you knew exactly what you wanted to do, or was there a period of floundering before you kind of found your next purpose? Oh, completely floundering. So first of all, um, you know, it was sort of a mutual decision between me and the board of AirAsia to part ways, mainly because I enjoyed the first six and a half years to take it to become a public company. But once it becomes a publicistic company, suddenly you have to deal with 
quarterly earnings expectations and audit committees and risk management committees, independent directors. And so there was less of a willingness to experiment. And, and I think the, the natural conclusion for me was, okay, it's now grown up. It needs an adult to helm the ship. I'm the crazy kid that rocks the boat. So time to pass the baton to someone else. Um, and, and so I made that decision uh, without knowing what else to do, right? And, and right after that, I think I spent like three months just traveling all over and meeting people and connecting dots. And, and in one of those uh, dinners and, and events, I met up with an old friend, Patrick Grove, uh, who's in a way like the founder of iFlix. It was his idea to create uh, a Netflix for Southeast Asia and for emerging markets. He, he's very good at finding people, so that's where he found Mark Britt uh, in Sydney and said, hey, Mark, come on up to Southeast Asia. Here's Azran, and you guys should come and, and you know, put, put the team together. Yeah, brilliant. So we'll move on a, a couple, of, couple of years from iFlix. Right. You know, two years ago, you co-founded Naluri yes. Hit Up. Yep. You know, it's a health tech startup in Malaysia. What was the catalyst to building a digital health technology platform? Okay, a couple of things. One, uh, while I was at Naluri, uh, sorry, while I was with iFlix, I went back to Stanford to reconnect with my ultimate Frisbee teammates. <laughs> and, uh, you know, life is always about connections. And, uh, and one of them was a co-founder of this amazing company in San Francisco called Omada Health uh, that was, uh, you know, helping people uh, achieve healthier lifestyles using digital. And so when I was comparing notes with them, I said, oh, I'm doing the same thing, except I'm getting people addicted to mindless TV entertainment, and you're doing the same just to get people healthier, right? I think you guys can sleep better at night. <laughs> but the other thing that I learned is that, uh, you know, when we started, I shared how 115 investors rejected us because they said, you don't stand a chance against Netflix. But what they didn't realize is that a lot of these services, creating a localized solution specific to the mass market segment in emerging markets, is different. You can't take a Western Silicon Valley model and make it work in this part of the world. And so I saw also Mata Health and I said, oh look, well, same thing, right? They're nowhere near as dominant as Netflix is and there's going to be a need, a, a crying need for that in this region. I think, and why it hit home for me was because then I went back and I recalled uh, how eight years ago I lost my father to diabetes and cancer. And what I noticed was the hospital system, the doctors were mainly focused on the physiological care, right? this drugs, this chemo appointments, do this, do that. But in the years, uh, you know, as, as the, the condition progressed, right, you could see, and I guess what, what was now the depression and anxiety that people have when they have to live with chronic conditions, and there was no level of care for that, right? Uh, a lot of these people are left to fend for themselves, and when you don't take care of your mental health, it affects your physical health. And so, that was sort of for me the connection and I said, ah, okay, now, you know, I've really, you know, there's this specific problem statement of how do we provide that psychological uh, care for people who've got either early stage or advanced stage of chronic conditions and do it through digital so that it's a lot more scalable and a lot more affordable. And so sometimes once you have this vision, then you're like, cool, then, then it's like a, you know, a dog with a bone and I just said, okay, you know, I'm really going to tackle this problem. My first thing was first three months, not a single line of code, just met 200 people. And, and one of the first people that I wanted to connect with were my old colleagues at McKinsey, yeah. right? And so you go back and you say, hey guys, I've got this crazy idea. What do you think? What do you think? Oh, you should really meet Jeremy. 
he's uh, you know, one of the head of our healthcare practice and he's full of ideas, you two are gonna get along. And so that's how I met Jeremy and both of us said, hey, wow, we've got the same vision, let's do this together, right? So the importance of how dots in your life will always reconnect. Uh, I like that, very, very cool. So I, I believe Naluri means instinct yes, in, in Malay. Yes. So I'm curious to know, and, and for our listeners right. as well, if, if, they, if they sign up to an app right. with Naluri, right. how does it work? Sure. Um, well, first of all, our big focus is working with uh, B2B corporate clients, so insurance companies and corporate employers. And, and the first step there is usually screening uh, employees or policyholders to see who have risk factors, both physical risk factors like weight and blood pressure and blood sugar, as well as levels of depression, anxiety, and stress. And when you find that intersection, that is the specific target group that we're very focused on. And, and, and so one part is screening. Uh, but the other part is basically you get a multidisciplinary team of coaches led by your own psychologist. We also have a dietitian, a fitness coach, a team of doctors, pharmacists. And then as we progressed, we added executive coaching and financial planning because our users kept saying the number one and number two causes of stress in their lives is workplace stress and money. Right? And if a psychologist can't help you with that, giving you very specific, tangible advice that's actionable, you're never gonna get healthier with food or being compliant with your medication because your head's just full of all the pressures that you face at work or, or with your own finances, right? So it's about a multidisciplinary team who are coordinated. Because yeah. the problem that we saw in healthcare is it's siloed, right? You see a cardiologist, he's only gonna talk to you about your heart. You see a dietitian, she's gonna talk to you about your food. But the problems are interrelated. So how do we create a backend where it's not, it's not a marketplace. It's not about, oh, I've got 200 psychologists on my panel and I'm just matchmaking you. That's not yeah. what we're about. We're about hiring these psychologists and dietitians full-time on our payroll and teaching them a new digital curriculum. How do you kind of connect, provide counseling and therapy in some cases with digital dashboards? So we believe that AI should be used not to create chatbots because I think it becomes highly impersonal. The human element is crucial, but we analyze behaviors, mindsets, and motivations in a quantitative way and present that to the psychologists and the coaches so that they can act on much more efficiently. Oh, I like it, I like it. Yes. So, uh, you know, you're talking about working with your insurance companies mm -hmm. and in the corporates and now. Are you also working with governments to help them understand that more investment is required in prevention rather than the restoration aspects? Uh, we engage a lot with governments, uh, two things. One, I think governments generally aren't the first movers in a lot of new innovations. And so they wanna see more evidence. So what we've started to do is invest in clinical research with uh, government hospitals, right? So we've got one on cardiac rehab and we're starting one on uh, cancer and we've got one on, on diabetes. Because as you build the, uh, the evidence base, that's where I think uh, government policy um, makers will start to say, okay, now I'm prepared to do this because this, this is not just theory or a crazy idea anymore. So there's that element. The other part, I think, uh, in, in our part of the world, uh, the first priority for government when it comes to the digital health agenda is they're very concerned about digital health prescription and, uh, sorry, diagnosis and prescription. We don't do either. 
right? So we're not going to tell you you have a certain condition, and we're not going to say you need this medication. And so because we're not doing either of that, they said, okay, Azran, you're not a critical priority. We're going to focus our efforts on all these other digital startups that are doing that, because that's where you start getting into licensing and all of that. For us, we partner with hospitals, for example, who say, okay, I have a patient who's struggling with um, uh, a heart condition. This is the diagnosis and this is the prescription. Our job as a team of online coaches is to help them stay on track, continue to change their lifestyles, stay on the medication so that it leads to a healthier outcome. But we don't take away that patient from the doctor. So raising curiosity and, yes. and having a purpose is so important to achieving success. Yes. Can you tell us about your, your recent book mm -hmm. called 30 Days and 30 Years uh, which was launched um, back in the beginning of this year? Yes, uh, so it's a compilation, first of all, of all the mistakes that I've made, <laughs> right? Uh, so none of this is, uh, uh, you know, had any benefit of foresight. It was just all through mistakes and errors. And what I learned was, you know, the whole idea of running a business or in any organization along a 12-month plan can be extremely limiting because the world that we live in today is just simply too fast moving. So instead of that one year plan, or sometimes people have three to five year strategic plans, nuclear bomb all of that, right? Instead move to the two extremes, running organizations in a faster 30 day sprint cycle, but at the same time thinking about 30 years, because the cool thing about a far enough time horizon is that you're no longer constrained by existing resources and budgets and existing technologies. You can unleash your imagination. And I think it's super crucial to do that because that's when you start thinking about your purpose, right? Like the whole, I wanna be able to fly everywhere, right? I wanna be able to be the most reliable airline, the most convenient. Now, how are we gonna do that? Well, we're gonna learn very quickly every 30 days. Well, this works, this doesn't work, this works, this doesn't work. We're gonna be open to new technologies and new concepts and models that today we can't even imagine what's around the corner six to 12 months from now but we have to know what our compass is, right? And so that's, for me, the framework of 30 days and 30 years. Yeah, I like it, I like it. The, the now and the, and the future beyond, yes. right? It's right. not just what's happening in, in a few Correct, years' time. Correct, because if speed alone without direction is a headless chicken. Correct. Yes. <laughs> so, so triathlons have formed a, a big part of yes. your life. What is it about triathlon that attracted you to begin with and why is the passion continuing to burn so brightly? Well, I think two things. One, when someone tells me this is really hard, and actually with triathlon specifically, I told myself, like I did not know how to swim at, at 40 years old. Uh, but when I look back and say, well, that's the same thing as when someone says a long haul low cost model cannot work. That's when someone says uh, a privatized stock exchange cannot work, all of these uh, situations and I said huh if I go back to that it's always about not being intimidated by the big challenge but breaking it down into well if I were to address it it's just about addressing step one two three and after that I'll figure out where it is but once you do step one two three four five six will start to become clear but you'll never know what step four five six is before you start and so I started to apply that to swimming and uh, so going from not being able to swim Lesson one with five-year-old kids, put head in water, blow bubbles. And that progression and that repetition, you know, gave me the confidence. And, and the number one thing that I've, I love about triathlon is, till today, I'm still afraid of swimming in water. 
but I've learned that life is not about waiting for fears to go away, but figuring out how do you start and not let the fear hold you back from starting. The fear will never go away. Mm. You just get comfortable with the fear. Yeah. And so what's been your greatest or favorite moment in Ironman personally? Well, I, I suppose that the most emotional thing was last year because uh, you know, going from it's just recreational to getting very serious about it, and then last year, May 2018, I did 70.3 in Da Nang, Vietnam, and I actually got a spot for the World Championships in uh, South Africa. However, two weeks after that, I decided, came back from Vietnam, I got brand new electronic shifters, and boom, got into a major car crash, uh, brain injuries, spinal fractures, broken shoulder, broken uh, bones in my legs, uh, and so, wiped out the dream of uh, being ready for South Africa. But, you know, it's that process again, you feel like you're down and you're like, well, okay, I'm not gonna be ready for South Africa, but I wanna get ready, right? And so from not being able to lift my arm, three out of my four limbs in a cast, to just saying, okay, it's inch and inch and inch and inch, and 174 days after that accident, I went back to Ironman Langkawi, right? And, uh, and so, while nowhere, it's not a PB race or anything, but it's for me, it's my personal world championship yeah. that I can get back on the saddle because life is not about avoiding risk, mm. right? It's about taking it head on, knowing that life will smack you down and smack you down hard, and in my case, literally hard and painful. But the only lesson in life is we have to learn how to get back up. We all know smart people have great answers but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Ah, wow. Um, okay. So it, I'm gonna give a slightly different answer to this because I think an even more difficult thing that I've been wrestling with is when was the last time you changed your mind about something, right? Because I can talk about uh, you know um, you know going caving and doing new things, right? I, I did base jumping, I did that and that. But I think it's even harder to say when was the last time you changed your point of view. And so just literally two days ago, I had this big change of view, which I, I was quite excited because it's not often that you change a view. And I've always in the past thought of you know certain sports are not as legitimate. Right. For example, we now have the Southeast Asian Games happening right now, and one of the medal sports is breakdancing. Yeah. Right? And I used to think, well, you know, gymnastics, breakdancing, not a real sport, right? It's not, it's not quantitative <laughs> and not measurable. But you know, one of the things you learn, certainly through the accident and all of that actually is, and with Nullery, the power of the human mind concentration, focus, balance are equally as important as speed and strength is an endurance, right? And so when you look at those sports and you understand that those parts are equally challenging, you get a new appreciation. So for me, it's like, wow, you know, like to have a big change of view, I, I thought was quite momentous because it's not often we change our views. You may have even answered the next question as well, but I am going right. to ask it because I'm sure you're a curious man, yeah. so I'm sure something's going to come out of this. What is the one question that you would love to solve? Wow. Um, 
So I, I don't have these big long-term uh, questions. I'm really always fascinated with uh, what, you know, what I'm tackling right now, but it is early detection of suicide, mm. right? Uh, like, can we get better at detecting it so that it's not, when it gets to a stage where people are already contemplating it, it's too late, right? Um, so what would be the early indications and how do we get better at engaging people? Uh, it's like, you know, we're, we're getting very good at diabetes and cancer, right? But I think mental health is 50 years away from, or 50 years behind diabetes, heart disease, and cancer. And so a lot of it is the same way we detect physical uh, symptoms early on, can we detect mental health challenges earlier on? I think it's been su suppressed for so long. Yeah. Like people weren't empowered to speak exactly. out about it. That's, right. that's probably why it's taken so long. At Active CEO, we're, we're really passionate about making a difference in people's lives, just like you are, mm -hmm. Naluri. Mm -hmm. So we'd like to leave them with a call to action. What is one piece of advice that you have received over the years or something that you've come up with and given mm -hmm. to other people that you'd like to share with our listeners? Oof, only one. <laughs> uh, you know, to me, I think it is uh, taking time regularly, putting in your calendar, like once a week, one hour, to reflect and think, why am I doing certain things? Is there a different way of doing things? Because somehow, if we don't do that, a whole year can go by and you're just executing on one path without realizing, well, maybe things have changed, circumstances have changed, right? And so the power of reflection, I think, is something all of us can do more of. Yeah, so important, so important. Our, our lives are so busy, we just keep moving forward. You've given some, some wonderful insights and you have incredible sort of array of experiences in your lifetime. How can people learn more about what you do and what would be the best way for people to connect with you? Uh, LinkedIn, for sure. Uh, otherwise, I've got my azranosmanrani.com website or my other social media platforms or 30daysand30years.com. Yeah, and look, we'll put them in the show notes so people sure. can, can grab them. So, sure. Azran, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I, I've thoroughly enjoyed sort of listening to your, your early years where you talked about, you know, sort of being that curious kid and, and, and being in that position where you could ask lots of questions because of the people that were coming into your proximity. Yes. Um, to deciding to go halfway around the world to try and get away from Malaysia yes. and, and choose the least. Yes. Uh, disruptive or also le least yeah. mind-blowing yes. kind of area to go yes. into right. and then really find your your own in that creative space as an entrepreneur startup leader and really take on some huge challenges I mean most people would just they, they if they got given the opportunity would probably freak out and just go nah it's too much for me but you took it head-on right. have achieved some phenomenal things in life but what I love the most is now you're really giving back to people through Naluri and it's important that the mental health side of things and it's such an important aspect of society that needs help, needs support and I'm really grateful that people like yourself right. are bringing these to the forefront and making a difference in people's lives. So thank you very much for your sharing your courage, your fears. Um, your amazing wisdom and belief and story. So thanks so much for your Thank time Thank you today. for having me, Craig. On this week's Active CEO Performance Tip, we're talking about how big in 2020. 
What action are you going to take in 2020 that is different from 2019? First, distinguish what you reflected on and learnt from the previous year. Then you need to understand what the big goals are. Remember, if you don't set the bar high, you'll only jump low. Be that mature person in 2020 who rises above the noise that go inside your head and go for the really big goals. It's time for you to take the big leap. You know, challenge yourself. Put yourself out there. Because if you're not striving for something, if you're not pushing, if it doesn't feel uncomfortable, then you're not going to make the big change. You need to test yourself. Push yourself. Because now is the time for you to take the big leap and go from where you are right now to where you really want to be. Thanks for listening to an epic conversation with Azrin Osman Rani, Power of the Human Mind, on episode 72 of the Active CEO podcast. The basic fundamentals of performance start with exercise, nutrition, mind, and recovery. These four components are the fundamental, non-negotiable building blocks to determine how high your performance ceiling is, because talent will only set your minimum height. Whereas exercise, nutrition, minor recovery will determine how high you can raise your ability above that talent or minimum height to perform your absolute potential. Expending energy through regular exercise increases your energy in life. Fueling your body like you would a Formula One car or elite athlete allows you to sustain your energy. Freeing your mind provides energy for your brain to function with clarity. And recovering with purpose recharges the batteries to give you the energy to perform the next day. Other performance benefits on the four basic fundamentals of performance include decreasing stress, elevating your mood, providing greater mental clarity, improving your memory, sleeping easier, decreasing fatigue, controlling anxiety, enhancing self-awareness, and building on your emotional health. The four basic fundamentals of performance form the foundation or phase one of breaking the CEO code. To learn more about how breaking the CEO can help you as a CEO or your team, then contact Craig Johns about active CEO coaching and corporate programs at craig at NRG, the number two, perform.com or click on the contact page of www.nrg, the number two, perform.com website. This is the Active CEO Podcast where the ordinary don't belong. Join the Active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.